1: This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello and welcome to another special edition of the podcast where we get to sit down and talk to an author of a book that we think is important. Uh, we are really fortunate to be joined today by Gail Temek Lemon, is the author of New York Times bestsellers, Ashley's War, and the dress me- dressmaker of Kair Kana, uh, also an adjunct senior uh, fellow at the Council on Foreign Relations. Her new book is called The Daughters of Kobani, a story of rebellion, courage, and justice. Congratulations on the new book. Welcome.
0: Thank you so much. I'm glad to be here.
1: Um, I have to say, as soon as I heard about the book, I, I immediately ordered it. It's a story that has been fascinating to me since I first heard of it. It's, it, it's kind of the, the, one of the most inspiring stories of women's empowerment in one of the least likely places you would find it anywhere, anywhere in the world. Uh, I've read some of the conversations you've had, interviews you've had with other people about it, the origin story of the book. But I thought because you've spent so much time in the region, it's good to begin by uh, discussing what it was you felt that was so compelling about this that it would you would allow yourself to be drawn back in.
0: (laughs) It's great to be here. You know, I think for me, it's exactly what you just said. Every great story starts with a question you can't answer. And I immediately was fascinated when a US soldier who had been in Ashley's war, my second book about an all-women special operations team that had been recruited for Army Ranger and Navy SEAL missions in 2011. While women remained officially banned from ground combat, she called me from Syria in 2015-2016 and said, "You know, you have to come. There is a, the most amazing thing is happening. We're working with women in the partner force and not only are they leading in battle, but they're leading men in battle. And the American men that she worked with in special operations had just enormous respect for them. And she said, you know, the thing that is fascinating is that they're not just fighting ISIS. They're fighting for women's equality. And my uh, father has uh, come from the region and I had a, a fraction of a glimmer of an understanding about what that journey would be as an individual to go from families who really think that they you know, have your, your life pretty mapped out for you when you're born a girl to taking up arms and fighting a force that had violence against women and the subjugation of women right at the heart of who they were. And I deeply wanted to understand how in the world did it come to be that one of the most far-reaching experiments in women's equality any place in the world was taking place on the ashes of the fight against the Islamic state created by women who truly fought ISIS room by room and house by house and town by town as America's partner for a half decade.
1: So, you know, when you, when you hear about this kind of thing, the the, the, the first question you ask is what is it that created the conditions that, that, that put women in such a different role here? And uh, in your story, you describe both an ideological foundation for this in the works of Okan, but also um, a pragmatic foundation. ISIS was there. ISIS was dangerous. And you know, when you you know you profile a number of women in the book, when you speak to them, you get the impression that while they they bought into the ideological foundation, the motivation was the immediate threat.
0: It was existential, right? When men who buy and sell women come to your neighborhood, what is your choice? Truly. And so for these women, they originally took up arms just to take care of their neighborhoods, right? At the beginning, it's largely from the Kurdish community, ethnic minority, that really takes up arms in 2011, 2012, to keep other people out, and to govern themselves for the first time, right? to be able to celebrate their holidays, name their babies what they would wish. And then the Syrian civil war metastasizes into a global conflict with extremism right at the center. And the Americans are looking for a way to stop the Islamic State. Because it might be hard for listeners to remember, but in 2014, ISIS was invincible. These folks had not had one battlefield loss. And I spent a lot of time and the book really takes readers into talking to U.S. military folks who had spent their entire adult lives in the post 9-11 wars, Iraq, Afghanistan, every place uh, in between. And who were really worried that they were going to bequeath this fight to their children because no one seemed willing to put forces on the ground to stop ISIS as it became really the fighting force with an unbreakable and glittering string of winds from Mosul onward.
1: Well, you know, the story, uh, I mean, there's, there's, there's so many stories and so many layers to the story and the book is so great. And I I, I actually, I I have to tell you, um, I know one of your other books is being made into a movie, but as I was reading this, I was like, how long do I have to wait (laughs) for this to be a movie?
0: It's in process. It is in process. The adaptation. Yes. And and you know, it's funny you say that because I write that way. You know, when I sit with people who trust me with their stories and it's really tedious work, right? They're so tired of me by the end. They're like, how many times can you ask me the same question, right? Three months in part. Where were you standing? Who was right there? What did it smell like? What did it feel like? Do you have photos, right? Because so much of this was captured on phones. This was one of the first conflicts that everything was on WhatsApp or Facebook or you know, one of the social media platforms. And so you know, I always saw it in this cinematic way because the way they told it, not because they thought they had done anything extraordinary but they wanted their friends to get credit. None of the women involved thought they did anything special.
1: Yeah, but, but having said that, if you were to go and sit down in a Hollywood story meeting and say, look, here is this evil force in the world, and one of the things that distinguishes them as evil is how brutally they treat women, how they abuse them, how they denigrate them, and we are going to set them up in a battle after they have been essentially undefeated anywhere in the world, and they are going to lose on this battlefield in Kobani, to a military force, which is led in large part by women in which they are defeated by women and not, you know, sort of women playing some, but these are women fighting them on their own terms and beating them on their own terms. And that's, you know, how how, you can't come up with a better story than that.
0: You can't. And that was why I thought it's so Shakespearean, right? Because what are the odds that a fighting force that had violence against women at the center of at its very core, would come up against one of the few fighting forces in the entire world where women's emancipation was not just peripheral to who they were, but was a very central piece of why they took up arms. And the the book really opens with me there for PBS NewsHour, uh, asking a really dumb question to a young woman who had been out all day fighting the Islamic state. And she said, you know, we're writing our own history now when I interviewed her afterward, and I said, but isn't this a really hard place to start? You know, if you're going to fight for women's equality, are you really going to start in the ashes of the Islamic State? And she looked at me and said, we're from here. We know exactly how hard it is, but we are not just doing this for ourselves. And I wanted readers to capture and to understand that it wasn't just about defeating ISIS. For them, it was about defeating the ideology that said they were worth nothing.
1: One of the inspiring things to me, <clears throat> it, and again, this is one of I, I think part of the great balancing act in writing a book like this, and all credit to you, but it, it is that what these these women did was extraordinary, but who these women were was ordinary. Not Gary, I don't I don't mean it's ordinary. A
0: wonderful point. No, no, it's exactly. I'm writing a piece on this exact point.
1: Well, I'm just t- talk talk a little bit about that. That uh, dichotomy.
0: You know, so many times in our stories, because we don't see women in multiple dimensions on the page very often, right? They are either brave or they're warm. They're either funny or they're fearless. And in real life, all the women who come on the show and who are listening and who are in your families and in your neighborhoods, they are never one or the other. They're always glorious in their complexity. And the book really captures the fact that it's not about superheroes or Thor Ragnarok's Valkyries, for those of you who love Tessa Thompson like I do. Uh, It is really about ordinary people who rise to the moment in service to a cause greater than themselves and who never would have expected that this is where their life would lead. I mean, Znarin is a, is a, a person in the book who you know, readers have written me about, and it's been so moving because here's a young woman who her parents said, you cannot uh, attend university because that's not what girls in our family do. You can't marry the person you love because that is not what's going to happen. Your uncle already chose a spouse for you. And she says, no. And so by the time somebody knocks on her door and says, we have this ideology that says the Kurds can't be free until women are free. She's ready. And we follow her journey from being a driver and a gopher, really, for uh, the head of the women's protection units, to going all the way to Membij and to liberating her hometown from the Islamic state and watching girls come up to her. And here's a person who would never have thought that she had the medal to do that. But when the moment called for it, she reached deep inside and found it. And it is that human spirit, and it's that inspiration of what do you do in the moment where you're called to be everything that you might be? What do you do that I, that I wanted readers to live in?
1: Well, first of all, I didn't expect we were going to get to the Marvel Comics universe <laughs> in the course of this, um, but, but, but always happy to do that. Frank, frankly, I, as, you were, as you were describing it, I was thinking, you know, the only place I've really seen this depec- depicted is in the French uh, TV series, The Bureau where there's exactly. a whole sub subplot about it um, and, and they capture, you know, it's, it's not that distant, a cousin of what you're writing about. They, they, they sort of cap. I don't know if you saw yes. it. But
0: I, yeah, no, no. I think that that is what they work to capture. Absolutely.
1: Um, But, you know, I, I, I guess, you know, you've having written Ashley's so war, having spent time with, with us special operators uh, and clearly being aware of the fact that right now the administration is undertaking a big, Evaluation of how women are treated in the U.S. military, and how and and the patterns of abuse and the patterns of discrimination that still are predominant, uh, including the last president of the United States suppressing effectively the promotion of women to general uh, or to to flag officers, um, because you know of just inherent sexism, that you go to the part of the world where you expect this not to happen or you think this is the most far-fetched outcome. What were the conditions beyond the existential threat that led, and, and, and here particularly I think the interesting thing is, led Kurdish men to be so comfortable with women battlefield commanders? What, what, what was the sense, what, what created that willingness to do what they should have done, what, what people should be doing everywhere?
0: It's an excellent question. And it was funny because I would come back from Syria and be talking to friends and they'd say, well, you know, are they learning from the Americans? I said, what are you talking about? They make what we are working for in the US look like child's play relatively, right? Look at the founding document of Northeastern Syria. Women are mentioned 13 times, no child marriage, yes to girls' education, uh, full economic equality for women, full uh, political equality plus political representation. So however you feel about it, The political peace was the end that they were aiming for on the battlefield, right? Because what the women in this book will tell you, and they they would say in the story, is that if they could lead in battle, they could govern in peace. So, so how did this come to be? I think there were three things. One is the ideology of Abdullah Ocalan, right? There's no, you cannot divorce uh, who they were, even though really in the book Chronicles, the Americans tried a couple of times, right? You couldn't divorce. What motivated them from the ideology of Abdullah Ochalan, which said the Kurds could not be free until women were free and that the housewifeization of women's work had contributed to the enslavement of men and women in the Kurdish community. That ideology is not universally embraced, but it does serve as the spine that gives a, a shape to the figure of what their politics become. Secondly, um, The battlefield is an incredible level. I've had the privilege of spending a lot of time with folks in special operations community who have become adults in the post 9-11 wars, right? And less than 1% of this country has fought 100% of its wars for two decades with precious few others noticing. And so by the time you get to 2014, 2015, 2016, you just want to win. You want a fighting force and a partner force that has the will to fight. And you talk to the special operations uh, soldiers who spent time with me an extensive time with me walking through why they had such enormous respect. And, and there's a scene in which one of the uh, special operations soldiers is at a rally point. They're about to go off by ISIS. He cannot go because U.S. policy says you can't go for forward. Right. And he's watching 30 young women in a flatbed truck you know, all whooping it up and giving each other hugs, braids in their hair, some with flowers in their hair, AK-47s, you know, sung around their shoulders going off to fight ISIS. And he has this mix of uh, kind of envy that they're going to the front line and he's not, I think uh, guilt that he can't go to the front and help maybe more of them stay alive and awe at the warriors they are. And he thinks about the 1962 MacArthur speech at West Point, duty, honor, country. So I think it's the battlefield is the second piece. And the third piece is they didn't care. I have never anywhere in the world met women who were more comfortable with power and less apologetic about being in charge because they weren't looking to win hearts and minds of men. As far as they were concerned, their ideology and their God-given human rights, right? Their, their, their <laughs> so, you know, innate uh, natural born rights said that they were equal. And they carried themselves as if they were equal. So, you know, Fausa Yusuf, the political leader in the book, I asked her, you know, what about when, what do men think about you pushing for equality in the political sphere? And she said, what do we care? You know, we're not, she said, yeah, of course they think it's too much too fast, but we're building a lake in the desert. And what we're doing is very hard and we have to start somewhere.
1: Yeah. It's interesting. I, as I listened to you, one of the things that I think about is, how many places in the Middle East where there is dysfunction wrought by men have there been the situation where women have stepped up? Um, uh, not to this extent, perhaps, but whether it's you know women in the Israeli army or um, uh, 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 a- a- activists in Saudi Arabia or um, uh, Yemen or women leading fighter squadrons for the Emiratis or 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 Malala, I mean not technically the Middle East, but in this ex- sort of extended period, there is, there, there is, a, there is a pattern of this. Um, and in the
0: U.S., we, I think we think we're much farther along than we are. But I will tell you that the opening of the book is one of the women in, the, in U.S. special operations saying she almost envied these women because they had such deep respect across the board and had no limitations on what roles they could play. If they led, they led. Right. If they could survive in battle and survive against the house-to-house combat that was the fight against the Islamic State, they earned respect. And it was that simple.
1: Yeah, I have to say, as inspiring as the book was, and I <clears throat> encourage people again to go out and, and, and get the Daughters of Kobani, a story of rebellion, courage, and justice. There was another emotion that I had, which was um anger. Anger tinged, I, I, I would say, with shame, because Here are the Kurds, the largest ethnic group in the world that doesn't have their own country, a group that, whenever called upon by the United States or the West, stepped up, a group that uh, has played a vital role in this particular um, existential struggle in the region, and a group that embraces values that are different from the values elsewhere in the Middle East and could be uh, an anchor, of the interests of, of, of the world in this region. And the United States has treated them like shit. The United States has treated them like shit from the beginning. And every opportunity we have to let them down, we let them down. And I was wondering, as somebody immersed in, in both these stories and policy, how you, how you feel about that?
0: To me, this is about American national security. We are coming in a period where no one agrees on much of anything across the political spectrum. And what has been very moving with this book is to see people from across the political divide say, you know what, (laughs) these really are the people who fought ISIS for us, right? These folks lost 10,000 across Arab, Christian, Kurdish communities uh, and continue to keep the pressure on the Islamic State. And there's a moment in the Daughters of Kobani where Rojda, who we've watched be America's interlocutor in the fight to retake Raqqa, From ISIS, right? And special operations folks are are are, you know talking with her every hour on the hour. You know, there's constant dialogue. Raqqa is over; they take it back from ISIS. Uh, Baguz finally ends. We're done with the territory of the caliphate, and then comes the Turkish-backed incursion of October 2019. And she goes back to the same towns we've been with her as she liberated from ISIS to fight Turkey, but now this time alone. I want readers to feel the impact of that. Uh, And I want people to, to decide for themselves what they think about that because these folks are now waiting to see what the new administration will bring. Their future hangs in the balance. And I will tell you, the thing that is so moving to me is having been there in December, 2019, how much hope remains on the ground that this very fragile stability they have built, which is endangered from the Syrian regime, from the Iranians, from the Turks, uh, from the Russians and certainly from ISIS continues to hold. Even in Raqqa, I was in Raqqa in December of 2019. Still, every town they took was run by, is now has a civil council that is co-headed by, man and, by a man and a woman. All of that is still in place. The Women's Council in Raqqa, which you'll see in the book, that is still in place. All of these things I thought were surely done for uh, are actually beyond what I ever expected, enduring. So I think it really is about America's national interest and how we continue to keep the pressure on the Islamic State without putting U.S. forces on the ground.
1: Yeah, it, it, I think it clearly is. And when you look at the neighborhood, it's a crappy neighborhood, right? I mean, as, as you say, the, the Iranians, I mean, the Syrians are among the worst of the worst in the government. Erdogan has turned out to be a disaster for democracy. The, the, obviously the russians are playing a big and not terribly constructive role in the region and we tend to defer to the governments of the bad guys and not stand up for the ones who have stood up for us and as you say that or as you implied that's short sighted because we've seen and and you know we were you know providing intelligence to Saddam Hussein when he was gassing kurds you know, um, th- th- we, we, we've been on the wrong side of this for a, r- a long time, or and, and, and I think we were on the wrong side of this in 2019 with, with the Trump administration, that if we want to change the region, we have to embrace those who are changing it.
0: Well, this really is about homegrown agents of change. And, and when you talk to folks, both on the diplomatic side and on the military side, what they will tell you. Is that this is about American national interest, right? This is about the partner that has done everything the US asks and we haven't even mentioned continues to hold thousands of foreign fighters of the Islamic State. I was in whole camp where their families are, where the women and the children who belonged, you know, the women who were part of the of ISIS, right? Even while facing NATO a NATO allies' air power they continued to hold for the sake of the world, thousands of ISIS foreign fighters that their own countries will not take back. So this is not about uh, simply the region, this is about limiting the ability to launch attacks against Europe, against the United States, and certainly uh, in that corner of the world. And I do think that those people who are now fighting to keep the pressure on ISIS are watching very closely to see what the Biden administration will bring as this policy tightrope that the Obama administration walked and then the Trump administration walked continues into the to the Biden White House.
1: Well I, th- I you know I think one of the things that's good about the book is that it's you know it's balanced and it assesses us. the Obama administration policy in Syria was lousy. The Trump administration policy in Syria is lousy. We still haven't gotten any um, a, you know, uh, an administration that's embraced something new. Although there are signs this administration has learned from that. And I, I've talked to Tony Blinken. I've talked to some of these people and I get the impression they know our policy in Syria was defective, deficient. And they've written uh, so, about it. Yeah. So, so the question becomes whether they do something about it. What do you see as, as we wrap this up, what do you see as the future of these women in the context of this uncertainty?
0: I think the future is a question mark written in invisible ink that we can't yet read because it does depend in part on whether the world continues to view them as the uh, partner that has fought for the world and continues to to hold the remnants of the Islamic State. And, And I think that right now they are really keeping intact everything they've built you know, women's in women judges, women, girls education, no dowry, all of these things that they have put in place that put women at the heart of governance, not just at the heart of uh, the defense side. But it will depend on what they're arguing for now, which is do they get a seat at the table when it comes to deciding the future of Syria?
1: If you believe in women's empowerment, if you are interested in the future of the Middle East, if you um, care about inspiring uh, stories, and you wish to be inspired. The Daughters of Kobani is a spectacularly good place to begin. Gail Semak uh is a is is well known for 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 crafting these kind of cinematic stories that bring us into these places. Uh, to me, this was the the best. The, the best of them, and I think it's one of the best books that I've read in in the past couple of years. So, congratulations on the book, Gail. I hope that it does extremely well. We have an audience of several tens of thousands of sort of foreign policy nerds. My Many people, of, yeah, yes, they're your people, um, and uh, they they uh, they this is what they they eat up. So, I, I I think it is exactly it is exactly what our our our, our listeners um of the past five years are interested in uh thank you for joining us congratulations on the book can't wait for the movie and uh, hopefully perhaps you'll come back at some point in the future and join us again
0: i'd be delighted to and thank you for showcasing this story policy in the end is about people's lives and i'm very glad to be able to bring this to your listeners
1: well i know a lot of them are in the government and i hope they are listening it is time that we rethink our approach to the entire region, we're beginning to do so, our approach to the Kurds. Um, And I think uh, that, you know, it would be impossible to read this story and not come to the conclusion we need a big change. So thank you, Gail. And for the rest of you who are listening to us, uh, you know, we have new shows every single day. Go to the dsrnetwork.com. Tomorrow, we actually have another show, which is focusing on another book by one of our regulars, Rosa Brooks, who's written a book, called Tangled Up in Blue about her time uh, as a member of the D.C. Police Force and her views on policing. It's a fantastic book. Um, And uh, because it's one of our Ask the Blob shows, you can join in, sign up, pose questions. Uh, And then, of course, we've got our regular shows on Monday and Thursday and Friday. So thanks very much to everybody for joining. For more, go to the DSRnetwork.com. And Gail's book, again, is The Daughters of Kobani, A Story of Rebellion, Courage, and Justice. Thanks all, and uh, stay healthy. Bye-bye.